Welcome to Momentum Church. Last week, I was supposed to preach this sermon. Remember I told you that last week? So if you give a preacher another week with his notes, that sermon will get longer. I'm just telling you right now. And so I did such a good job in the first service. It was timely. But the way I did that was I stuck very close to my notes. I'm going to do that today. Is that okay? So if you're used to me going off the cuff a whole lot, telling stories, not that kind of sermon. All right? But man, we're going to leave here today with some good stuff. And so I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. And did anybody have family come in? No, that's why you're here. Okay. So I wasn't sure. Not too many people had family come in. So, but, but we had a good time. And um, in light of Thanksgiving, where my mind was going last week was around the idea of the history of our country. And I love history. How many here like history? Okay, good. You're my people. So I love history. I love biographies and autobiographies. I love documentaries. If Amy and the kids would let me put the History Channel on 24-7... <laughs> I really, I would just listen and watch it all the time. I love history. And I'm going to say something today that has been debated regarding history in our country. Is that okay? And so this isn't a political, political, political sermon by no means, but it is a historical sermon. Okay? And so I'm going to say something that is a matter of debate concerning our nation. And um, here's the thing. Here's the thing that's debatable. Some people will say it's debatable. We are a nation that was founded upon Judeo-Christian values and principles by men who the majority of embrace the faith of the Bible. True or false? You don't, have to, you don't have to commit yourself, okay? But I will tell you right now, many of you hearing that, as you sit, you say, my secular educator at the university said that wasn't so. Now, raise your hand if that's the case. In the first service, a lot of people raised their hand. Yeah, yeah, the secular educator that you had in college may have said that the early founding fathers were not Christians, that most of them, and there was some, but that most of them were deist at best or agnostic and atheist at worst, all right? Not that if you're an atheist here, you're worst, okay? I don't, that, was, that was bad to say it that way because <laughs> we're a church that's very comfortable with your unbelief, all right? But we're a church also that that unbelief doesn't usually happen for too long because God starts showing himself to you. And um, I love it. This is a good, this is an incubator for atheists to get, to become believers. I just see it all the time. And so, but I didn't mean it to sound like a, 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 a pejorative or something negative. I just meant that they were not people of faith. So to understand what a deist is, we probably should start there. A deist is somebody who believes in a creator, all right, but a very impersonal creator and that the creator put everything into function much like a watchmaker makes a watch with all its functions and then that deity stepped back and now with the laws of governance as far as natural governance and etc all those things the earth and everything the people therein all just kind of run like a watch without the impact of the watchmaker's hand. So there's no benevolent God, there's no corrective God, there, there's not a God that you can implore in prayer, there's not a God that would redeem you and bring salvation through the shedding of his son's blood like we believe as Christians, that, that that's, that's not what a deist believes, it's just that things were created and now he steps back. And so many would say that most, the majority of our early church fathers, or, or not church, I'm sorry, national fathers were deists. And what I want you to come away 
this week is because that secular educator said that those deists who desire to establish this nation, they desire to separate it completely from religion. And, um, and I want you to come away this morning with a sense of honor and understanding regarding our country's, you ready for this? Our country's rich Christian heritage. All right, and I, and I can tell people are quiet in the room, you know, because it is, it's one of those things where it's like, are we allowed to say that? Are we allowed to believe that? We're not allowed to say it or believe it if it's false, Amen. but we are allowed to say it and believe it if it's, everybody say true. true. And so I want to see, I'm going to look at scripture, but I want to look at a lot of things in history, and we're going to clip along fast today, okay? And so let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, help this pastor clip along fast in your name, Jesus. Lord, open our eyes just to how good you were to our country and your desires for us now as Lord of our lives, as those who would call you our Savior. And so, Lord, visit our time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in the beginning, with the first Thanksgiving, George Washington, that first president, he made a decree that we would have a nationwide celebration that would mark this day of Thanksgiving, November 26, 1789. Listen to what George Washington, those who they say he was a deist, and I'm not saying he wasn't, but this sounds a little more personal than most deists would pray or say, declare. As a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God and calling on Americans to unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of the nations. Oh, come on, somebody. The great Lord and ruler of the nations. Priest George. And to beseech him, to beseech this great Lord and ruler, to pardon our national and other transgressions. He declared a day of thanksgiving that sounded like it's talking about a, a very imminent God. You know, a God that there's connection with, a God that you need forgiveness from, a God that you can implore blessing from. That's what supplication means, to ask of your request. This is not the George Washington that I was taught about in school. And so here's the thing. In Psalms 33, the title of the sermon comes from this passage in verse 12. And it says that the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Here's the title of this message. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's the title of the sermon today. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, if we're going to get down to verse 12, I'd rather start back at verse 1 because that's just how I preach, right? I like to take things in context. So let's stand to our feet and we're going to put a scripture up on the screen. We'll come back to that verse 12 again later. But Psalm 33, 1 through 5, it's a good sermon for a good verse for this time of year of Thanksgiving. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. Verse 5. This is the key. He loves righteousness and justice. Oh, I'm so glad that we have a God that's not vindictive. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Go ahead and have your seat. 
So in the establishing of our country, it was verses like this that stirred their hearts to have a nation that was founded upon justice for all, right? And I know that was strained at times. We had evil hearts that needed to have things worked out of us. But there was so much in the early days that they were trying to establish justice. In the first five objectives outlined in the 52-word paragraph that is the preamble of the Constitution, this was written during the six weeks, real hot weeks of 1787 in Philadelphia. And they found a way to agree on the following basic principles. And this is what they said. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, how many's had to memorize this in school? Can you do it? Let's do it. Ready? Okay, stop. That was good. No, that was really good. I'm, I'm impressed. I, I could not remember it. But it says a more perfect union. It doesn't say a perfect union. There was a lot of imperfections in our union. But thank God we've made a lot right and we still got more to make right. But it just says this idea that it was to form a more perfect human union to establish justice. That sounds like scripture. To ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. And so we see the founding of our nation, a nation that wanted to have justice for all, a nation that wanted to be created in such a way that I believe righteousness was a part of our culture. And here's the thing about that. It's because they were leaning into the Lord's counsel. In Psalm 33, verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And that's where my worry is, is that we're moving away from the counsel of the Lord, right? And if we're moving away from the counsel of the Lord, then we are moving away from the blessings of the Lord. We're moving away from liberty. We're moving away from righteousness. We're moving away from justice if we're moving from his counsel. And so the counsel of the Lord, though, stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. Then verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now here's the thing about blessing. With blessing comes responsibility, right? With blessing comes responsibility. And I'm going to tell you, our nation is a blessed nation, all right? I'm not saying that that blessing is promised forever, okay? But I'm saying I believe the foundation of our nation created a blessed nation. In 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville, he was a Frenchman who came to America to look around, and he talked about how exceptional America was. Have you heard of the term American exceptionalism? And a lot of times that's looked at like, like we're haughty and we have everything and, 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 and the world, we look down our nose at the world. But, but the first person that, that spoke it, I'm sorry, blame him. He's a Frenchman. Blame him. <laughs> Alexis de Tocqueville, he spoke of American exceptionalism, you know, that we were an exceptional nation. And that was just a few years into our nation, you know. This was 1840 or 31. And, but he talked about that exceptional quality. And so we see that. Do you, do you realize that when it comes to our nation, America is only 4% of the world's population? Okay, just 4%. But we create 31% of the gross domestic product of the whole world. All right? That sounds like a blessing in a sense. Could be a curse too in some ways because blessing demands, everybody say, responsibility. Now, why do we produce more wealth around the world than other nations? Is it because we have more natural resources? No, no. Literally, 
South America and the countries of South America have more natural resources than our nation. Africa, more natural resources than our nation. All over the world, more natural resources. We do have natural resources, but that's not what the difference is. That exceptional quality that has come, I believe, is because the word says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And so blessed, blessed, everybody say blessed, blessed. means benefits. benefits. Yeah, there's benefits when there's a blessing that comes from God. But also, blessing also brings, everybody say, responsibility. Look what it says. Blessed is the nation, who, that's the benefits, whose God is the Lord. That's the responsibility. This idea of, of letting Jesus be Lord and leader of our lives. And here's the thing about this. As I talk through this today, I don't want you to think your pastors look at you guys and saying, let's turn ourselves outward to the world outside these four walls. How dare them out there? not walk in righteousness. How dare them out there not walk in justice? How dare, oh, the, the nasty, filthy, dirty world going to hell in a hand basket. No, no, no. I don't, the Bible says judgment begins in the house of the Lord. I don't expect those out there to take responsibility. I am embracing the responsibility to say, God, you are Lord of my life and I'm gonna live my life like you are Lord of my life. And as you bless this house, you can bless the White House. As you bless this house, you can bless this community. As you bless this house, does it make sense? Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. So this is not one of those evil world type sermons, all right? But I do believe that we need to understand where we started to get way off in our, in our society. And so, you know, I think it started in trusting in our own strength as a nation, World War II takes place, and the defense buildup during World War II brought a flush of finances into our country. We come out of the Great Depression, we go through the World War II. When we come back after the war, everybody got pregnant. How many here, you're a product of the baby boom? Raise your hands. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, yeah, I, I just missed it. I'm like right at the edge. I'm an exer, but just by little, all right? But the baby boom takes place. Home ownership increases all over the country. Houses are being built. This is the, the decade, the 50s of the automobiles that were just incredible. Wasteful, but incredible. You know? Let's burn up all the fuel. Let's use all the steel. More steel, more steel, heavier steel. You know? This is the decade that brought you, ain't nothing but a hand Right? It's a good decade. It's a decade of buildup. Blessing, right? But here's what happens when there's benefit, but responsibility isn't embraced. You go into the 60s. And now we move into the 60s with the free love movement and the sexual revolution starts to take place. You go into the 70s and 80s with the hedonism of those years, you know, that ended up moving into the whole drug culture and all the hedonism. If it feels good, Come on, you all grew up in the 70s. I see some cokeheads up in here. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm trying not to look at Mom Blair. No, geez, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. She's like, it was just marijuana. No, I'm kidding. So, 70s and 80s, then we go into the 90s and 2000s, and things begin to move into the finances, the material things, you know. Ooh, the more I can get, accumulation, you know. And you know all that accumulation is up the mid-2000s with, with what? The bust, right? The bubble. It just pops, right? But you can see how this moved away. And we've seen with that moving, a moving away from God. We've seen with that moving, a moving away from the lordship of Jesus in lives,
in our country, in our families, if we're not careful within our own hearts. And so here's what Psalm 33, 16, and 17 says, because there is a sense of strength, there was a sense of blessing, all this, but it says, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. It's speaking of a nation that thought it had its own power, its own strength. We have it now. We can take care of business ourselves. And they lost the reliance upon God. But listen, we cannot forget that we are founded as a nation upon Judeo-Christian values and principles and that we need to lean into the wisdom of the Lord and to his strength, amen? Not man's counsel, not, not that strong horse, that war horse of our own ability, that war horse of our own provisions, that war horse. No, no, we've got to lean into the counsel and wisdom and provision of the Lord because we see what happens when nations don't. But we know the word says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Our early fathers, they understood this. And I believe that they embraced responsibilities and collectively as a nation, we saw benefits from our nation being founded upon these Judeo-Christian principles. Do you realize the stability of our statehood has been a testimony for 247 years? Out of the 195 countries in the world, we are the oldest constitution in existence, in history. Well, what about Pax Romanus? That was 300 years. Yeah, but their constitution wasn't that long, and they don't exist anymore. Oh, man, our country and the paths that we're taking so parallel the Roman Empire, it's not even funny. And I'm not trying to be a doomsayer, all right? I'm just saying judgment begins in the house of the Lord. The lordship of the Lord over our lives. All right, And so the secularists are trying to use the separation of church and state to separate Christianity from public society. Christianity, you have to understand, was so entrenched in public society for the early founders that it's impossible to separate the faith of our forefathers from the tenets of our constitution and the principles of our government. It's impossible. But like Israel of old, we have forgotten who brought us to the place of blessing and we desire to be ruled by another. Just like that nation of old, like Israel. I think it would serve us well to go back and remind ourselves of the history of our American roots. Can we do that today? And in the beginning of the, of the sermon, the first service, I leaned over to Amy. I had these in my hand. She goes, what are those? I go, these are my notes. She goes, did you not put them on your laptop thingy? And I said, I, I, have, them, I have these and that. And she's like, oh, honey. I'm like, pray I go quick. And the Lord gave us a Christmas miracle in the first service. So, how many how many's heard of Patrick Henry? Give me Yeah, we hear that. Give me liberty or give me death. I'm going to read a few long things and then some short things, and then we'll get back into the Word of God. But I want you to hear these early founding fathers, okay? This is, this is the whole speech that he gave right before he said, give me liberty or give me death. Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. Three millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. <laughs> There's a just God who presides over the destinies of nations who will rise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, 
the act of the brave. Besides, sir, we have no election. If we were based enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren, we are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Listen, forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Man, Patrick Henry. Do you realize out of that 14-sentence speech, how many Bible verses are quoted by him? 11. 11 out of 14 sentences. 11 times he is pulling something straight from Scripture. That's how much Scripture permeated the thinking of the early fathers. Benjamin Franklin, but he was a deist. Yeah, but he got old. (laughs) How many know when people get older, they start to think about faith differently? All right? Don't wait till you get old, young people, all right? But they do as they get older. And you can see that. Because people will say, well, Benjamin Franklin was a deist. And there's a lot of history on Benjamin Franklin. Not the most moral fella in the world, by no means, okay? <laughs> he liked the ladies. So, <laughs> true. But this is what he said in 1787. This is 11 years after the Declaration of Independence. And this is the request of prayer in the Constitutional Convention that year, Thursday, June 28th, 1787, as they are deliberating over the adoption of the Constitution. And he says to Mr. President, to George Washington, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks, close attendance, and continual reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many no's as yeses, is methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom. Remember the idea of the wisdom of God? This is political wisdom. Since we have been running about in search of it, we have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics which have been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution now no longer existing. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe, but none find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? Ooh, the counsel of God, right? Do you see that? The counsel of God they're looking, he's speaking of. In the beginning of the contest, 
with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? And this is a deist. A deist believes that God isn't a friend, that God isn't imminent, he's transcendent. So transcendent, he created and he walked away. But this is an old deist. God, I think, was doing something in his heart. Have we forgotten that powerful friend or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. I told you he's old. I wasn't just making this up. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. Guys, you may not get geeked out about this. Come back. I'll, I'll just preach a regular sermon sometime. But I like history. This makes me like, like I want to like speak in tongues. I just shout, woo! This is awesome, all right? And if a sparrow, he says, cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, that they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his, his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. Hmm. Sound familiar? <laughs> like, very, very much like what we're walking through right now. It's sad because, again, benefit brings blessing. Or, I'm sorry, blessing, brings, blessing of God brings benefit, but it also brings responsibility. And when you don't walk in responsibility, then it also brings judgment. You know, we're starting to see that. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance war and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Benjamin freaking Franklin. Yeah. Woo! Is that awesome? 14 sentences. He's long-winded, like long sentences, but they're 14. He's like Paul in Scripture. He just writes. <laughs> How many verses were mentioned? 13. And the 14 sentences. Even the political ideas and word usage in our Constitution is filled with allusions to Scripture. Andrew Jackson said it this way, the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. We've been a blessed nation. Yes, we have. And um, who are the leaders responsible for the founding of our nation? And if you ask most, they're obviously going to say these leaders. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Hancock, John Adams, people like that. Benjamin Franklin, they're going to say these things. But at that time, if you would have asked them who was responsible, if you would ask those four people who was responsible, you would have gotten a different list altogether. In 1816, John Adams was asked where much of the thinking that resulted in the founding of America came from. You ready for this? Hmm, I love this. The Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. The Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhem. This is, this is John Adams speaking about where these thoughts came from. The Reverend George Whitfield. That name may sound familiar to some of you. He was the evangelist that sparked the great first awakening here in America. The Reverend Charles Chauncey. We don't study these guys. 
Our secular teachers teach us the, 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 the least most faith-filled of our founding fathers. We don't study these guys. Reverend Harry Hoosier, I love this. He was a black evangelist who drew the largest crowds at that time. You know, um, Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he said that, 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 that Harry Hoosier was one of the greatest orators he had ever heard. And he heard Patrick Henry. And he heard Thomas Jefferson. That brother could preach. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And so that's what they're saying, right? Let me see here. Am I on the right page? I am. So good. All right. So, in the last hundred years, though, only the most secular have been elevated. You know, why would John Adams point to all these preachers? Why? As you look at the Declaration of Independence, it gives 27 reasons why we separated from Great Britain. Historians have verified that every one of these have been preached. These 27 reasons. Every one of those reasons had been preached in the American pulpit for years prior to the Declaration of Independence. Those thoughts of independence, those thoughts of justice and righteousness, those thoughts came from platforms just like this as the people begin to be stirred for what God wanted out of the country, what God wanted them to establish, a more perfect union. Yeah. So basically, like I said, it's a list of sermons that people have been hearing for 20 years. Out of the 56 who signed the Declaration of Independence, they met first on September 7th, 1774, and in the records of Congress, they opened up with prayer that day. And it wasn't, Father Jesus, thank you, and we look forward to having your help today, amen. No, no, they opened with prayer, it was two hours. It's recorded, two hours of prayer and scripture reading. John Adams wrote to Abigail, his wife, and said, not only did we have prayer, we studied four chapters of scripture together. God so spoke to us out of Psalm 35. I must beg you, Abigail, to read that psalm. Read it to your friends and to your father. Also, Abigail, the Congress called to fast three million people. By 1815, there had been 1,400 official government calls to prayer proclamations, calls to prayer by 1815. John Adams, a few months later, writes to Abigail about how God is blessing them in their fight. And God was. Think of the American Revolutionary War. Men with squirrel guns started the revolution against the greatest power on the earth. One of the greatest powers ever on the earth. Squirrel guns. Yes, God was blessing. He told Abigail this. It appears to me that the eternal God is operating powerfully against the British Empire. In 1781, the Battle of Yorktown brings us out from under British law and religion mandated by the king. One of the things the king wouldn't let is for people to print Bibles. The king could, but nobody else could print Bibles. 11 months later, after the Battle of Yorktown, the Bible, the first Bible was printed in America and it rolls off the press, all right? It was called the Bible of the American Revolution. Do you know who was responsible for this Bible? The Congress of the United States of America. Why would the founding fathers do a Bible? Well, the records of Congress say it's a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of our schools. Now, I'm not saying that we gotta have a Bible in schools because I really don't want the Quran in schools. You know, I'm not afraid of it. I just, I, I get that. But June 17th, 1963, no more Bibles in the school. In 1783, John Jay, Ben Franklin, and John Adams signed the peace treaty that secured American independence. And I want you to hear how they started the peace treaty. This is the end of the revolution, and they're signing the peace treaty. And those three guys, here's what it says, in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. 
That's how they started the peace treaty. That sounds pretty Christian to me. The founding fathers wouldn't say or once said under God in the pledge or in God we trust in our money. Really? John Adams signed the peace treaty we just said, the Declaration of Independence, and was there from the start to the finish of the writing of our Constitution, and he said it as simply as possible. Listen, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Don't you be ashamed of being a Christian in America. Amen? I don't want you being arrogant and getting ugly to people either. Don't be ashamed of it. No. So how arrogant are these educators for people that they claim that they know more than the people who actually lived through it? I mean, we're reading the stuff from people who actually lived through it. But we've been trained to recognize our two least religious founding fathers, Jefferson and Franklin. But do you know out of the 56 signers, 29 of them held seminary degrees. John Witherspoon that signed was like the Billy Graham of the day. And you may say, but Pastor Ross, 29 seminary degrees, weren't all the colleges back then Christian universities? Good point. Good point, yeah. Yeah, why? Because Christians make a difference. Hospitals, orphanages, universities, so much of society throughout the whole world since 2,000 years ago have been impacted by Christians. During the Great Plague, this isn't even American history, it's just freaking cool. During the Great Plague, it was Christians. You know, Christianity kind of took off another spurt during the Great Plague because it was the Christians that stayed with the sick. Didn't abandon the sick. I love that. Remember I was speaking earlier about Benjamin Rush. When Benjamin Rush died in 1813, he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, our first um, Secretary of Treasury, if I remember right. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson said of Benjamin Rush that he was one of the three most notable of the early founders. Now this is, this is Thomas Jefferson and John Adams saying this about a man. They listed these three, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Dr. Benjamin Rush. That's what Thomas Jefferson and John Adams said, okay? So, why don't we study him today? Why don't we study Benjamin Rush today? Can I tell you some of the things that Benjamin Rush did? And he was a, a devout Christian. The father of American medicine, Benjamin Rush. The father of public schools. Huge civil rights guy. He started the first abolition group in America. He helped found the first black denomination, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. He trained black doctors. Faith-based prison reform. Why don't we study him? He also was the guy that founded the Sunday school movement in America. He founded America's first Bible society. And he gives you the two reasons why. Number one, he said if people would read the Bible, they would become Christians. Number two, read and obey what we read. We would solve all of our social problems if we actually lived by the Bible. That's Benjamin Rush, but we don't talk about Benjamin Rush that much. I'm gonna give you one more guy, Charles Carroll. He was the last signer of the Declaration of Independence to pass away. Okay, so he died in um, 1856. He passed away. He was like 95 years old. And um, New York contacts him. New York City has a copy of the Declaration of Independence. They want him to make an epitaph of some sort that they can attach with it and display it. And so they ask him to inscribe his thoughts. And so here is what Charles Carroll said. He goes, I am, this is what he wrote. I am grateful to Almighty God for the blessings which through Jesus Christ, our Lord, he has conferred on my beloved country. And I'm not sitting here trying to say like, like, like go Christians and down with everybody else. I'm just saying let's not deny the history of our nation. All right? 
See, we're blessed because a group of people tried to take God's principles and incorporate those principles into business, into law, into health, into education, into social reforms, into politics. Not perfect union. They tried, okay? There was a lot of things that need to be perfected, and there's still things that need to be perfected. But they tried. And more than any other nation in its founding, more than any other nation, they tried. And they've been blessed. We've been blessed because of it. Foundations are important, aren't they? George Washington, last one. George Washington, founding father. He served two terms. They wanted him to be king. He denied a third term. They would have continued to elect him. But he didn't want that. He didn't want to go back to Britain like that idea. And so here's what he said at his last statement as president. He said, everything that matters, our politics prosper. I'm sorry, everything that, I got it wrong. Everything that makes our politics prosper is religion and morality are the indispensable supports. Everything that makes our politics prosper, religion and morality are our indispensable supports. In other words, this is what's causing our country to work. And that's how it was all those years. But listen, we have forgotten the Judeo-Christian foundations of our country and we've been misled to believe the foundation was not built by those who had faith in God. And because of that, we as a nation have begun to be desired, have begun to desire to be ruled by another. Much like that early nation of Israel, when they didn't want God to be king any longer. They wanted their own king. I want to read that scripture as we, we begin to wind this down. 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 7. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations, like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. See, they felt their quality of life would be better if they were like all the other nations. But the problem is they weren't called to be like all the other nations. They were called to be different. Amen? They wanted the right thing. They, they wanted leadership, but for the wrong reasons. See, Israel requested to be like the other nations, but they had been chosen to be unlike the other nations. They had been chosen to be a people governed by God. And us, us much the same way as a nation, we have chosen a new king. We have chosen a different ruler. And we have embraced the rulers of this age. As I go into this next part, I want you to own your own hearts. Again, we're not looking outside the four walls. Judgment begins right here. We got to own our own hearts. Blessed is the nation whose God is their Lord. Is he our Lord or not? Is he the one we serve? Is he our master, the one we follow or not? And so they had chosen a new king. They wanted a different ruler. And we have embraced the rulers of this age. John MacArthur, he says the three elements that most characterize our present world system. These are the rulers. I'm going to call them the rulers. These are humanism, materialism, and illicit sex. Humanism places men above all else. Whatever I feel, whatever I believe, that's true to me. It puts me as God of my life completely. Humanism is those things right there. And I started thinking about what I said to you earlier, what the Lord had revealed to me sociologically, because you can't study history without studying sociology. And so as I began to look sociologically at those historical trends of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and early 2000s, it started to hit me that these rulers are present 
In the 60s, it was the illicit sex. It was sex that began to make its move. In the 70s and 80s, it was humanism or hedonism. Whatever you need to have pleasure. Like I said, go for it, right? And then the third thing, 90s into the 2000s, we really began as a nation to embrace materialism. I remember 1991, going to Ohio State University, going up to the, to the, the, to the cafeteria, and they're going to give me a credit card? Yeah. I was 18 years old. Like, what in the world? And I knew enough to not get it, but man, it, it was just like that time in the early 90s all the way to the 2000, you know, to the bust. It was just credit, credit, credit. Everything was coming easy. It was all about materialism. It was the rulers of the age. Let me speak a little about secular humanism. When it comes to the idea of humanism, it came to mean belonging to this age worldly. In general terms, secularism involves the affirmation of the imminent, like what you have right here, worldly realities, along with a denial or exclusion of the transcendent, other worldly realities. It's a worldview and lifestyle oriented to the profane rather than the sacred. Walter Ewell says it's oriented to the natural rather than the supernatural. Secularism is a non-religious approach to individual and social life. Welcome to America. This is what is happening. But blessed is the nation whose God is their Lord. My, one of my favorite writers is Francis Schaeffer. He said, humanism is the defiant denial of the God who is there. The man defiantly set up in the place of God as the measure of all things. Deny God and we let ourselves be the measure, the counsel of men. We saw that earlier. But God is looking for those who still want to be ruled by him. Amen? And that's why I implore you today, not to look out, but to look in. I want you to be ruled by him. Will we be a remnant? Do, do, do I think our country is going to get way better? I, 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 I don't think so. But God will always look for a remnant, a group of people. I, I even think of the nation of Israel like a remnant right now. That little country in the middle of all this chaos that wants them dead. But they stand as a remnant. A reminder that God has hand upon them. I'm not saying they're walking in perfection, all right? And as a country, I believe that we can establish our hearts to make him Lord of our lives. And in doing so, we can establish a remnant in our home, a remnant in this church, a remnant in this city, a remnant in this nation, amen? And so how do we do that? God is looking for those who still want to be ruled by him. And I won't go through this very long. But Psalm 13, 18 through 22, he's looking. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver them from their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Guys, there's a famine in our land. Uh, Mother Teresa, she said that there's a famine in America, not a famine of food, but of love, of truth, and of life. To me, that idea of love, truth, life, that, that all speaks to righteousness. That, that to me, we have a famine regarding that which is right, a famine of righteousness. And fixing this famine doesn't begin in the White House, it begins in our house, right? Every, so many times, the, 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 the agenda of politics, we want conservative values to be legislated in our state house, but often we allow all sorts of things to enter our own house. And we know that we have no business embracing those things, as people who call Jesus Lord of our lives, but we're not allowing him to be Lord of our homes. Does that make sense? So the source of true change in our country doesn't come from who is reigning in the White House. It comes rather from who is reigning in our hearts. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. What do we need to do to resort to root ourselves again as the holy people before a holy God? What do we need to do? And I'll go through this fast. 
I'm not gonna preach this long. Psalm 33, 20 through 21. It says, I'll read it and then I'll come back. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. When I read that in that passage, that's the solution. If we want him to be Lord of our lives, number one, our soul waits. We wait upon the Lord. Are you a home? Are you a person that waits upon the Lord? That doesn't mean, God, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. No, it's an act of waiting. God, I am at your service. I'm waiting upon you as Lord and master. What would you have me to do? What would you have me to be? What would you have me to put my hands to for your kingdom, for your glory? So we wait upon the Lord. If he is Lord, we wait upon him. Number two, he is our help and our shield. We seek refuge in the Lord. We don't find our refuge in your favorite pundit. Ben Shapiro, he's not gonna save you. You know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know. We don't find our refuge in our favorite, whatever it is. We don't know our refuge is in the Lord, amen. We find our refuge in him. We find our, our protection in him. Number two, three, for our heart is glad in him. We find our joy in the Lord. We, we don't find our joy in that which is illicit. We don't find our joy in the material. We don't find our joy in, 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 in whatever it might be, you know? We find our joy in him. And there are people in this room right now that struggle with sexual sins. I get it. There are people in here who struggle with financial things. There's people in here. We all, I, in the first service, I was about to say something specific and I thought, nope, I'm not. Because you know what you struggle with. I know what I struggle with and I'm not telling you. I got people I'm accountable to and I pray and, and get help. And, but listen, we, it says here, find our joy in the Lord. And if you're struggling to find your joy in the Lord, you know, you may need to get some help. And I think that leads us to the next one because we trust in his holy name. We trust in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is the character of God. And so when my character doesn't line up, I want to trust in his character over my character. And when that doesn't line up, I might need some help. And that's okay. We're a church that believes you can get help. Amen? counseling, other, other means, education, understanding, you know? Don't try to do it all on your own. Get in a small group, be with other people. That's part of trusting the character of God, you know? Being able to be in community together. And so we see this passage of Scripture. To me, I see this passage of Scripture as the answer to making him Lord of our lives. I wait upon you, Lord, you know? I, I seek refuge. You're my shield. I have no other shield but you. I find my joy in you, Lord. I find my trust. I trust in your name and your character and who you are, Amen? So I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. Father, in the name of Jesus, we in this room, we do, we stand together in repentance. I do, of things in my life that I have allowed to lord over me. Lord, I recognize that your blessing upon this nation is a powerful thing, but it's conditional, God. Blessed are those who God is their Lord. And I ask in my life, Lord, that I would increase my heart's desire to have you be Lord, master, leader, over every area of my life, Jesus. And for those here in this congregation that, that bear witness with that with their own hearts, Lord, let us be your remnant, Jesus. <laughs> oh, Jesus. We don't say that in a haughty way. We say it in a broken way, God. We see the woes of our community. We see the woes of our society, God. We don't come as hypocrites, Lord. We come broken, we just ask, God, let us be a remnant. A nation within a nation. Calling you Lord of our lives and living accordingly. 
Because of that, Lord, let us see your blessing rain down. Not that we might walk in blessing, but that you might be seen and known and receive glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. For more information, please check out www.momentumchurch.tv.